Target, your weekly ramblings on popular culture. You'll notice again we're doing a mini episode this week, uh, and you'll actually be hearing more of these, not just from me, but from other people in the crew in the near future. We're going to be making a statement later this week concerning the future of how we're doing the show and the format of the shows going forward. Don't worry, you're not going to lose your full cast podcast. We're still going to do those. Uh, but we have some new plans for where we're going as we approach our one-year anniversary. On Off Target each week, we talk a lot about movies. It's actually probably our main topic each time. We, yes, we talk about video games and books whenever we can, and even music occasionally. But really, most of us, we get down to movies when we talk about it. And there's a reason for that. Movies have the ability to kind of touch everybody. It has some of the most broad spectrum appeal. And when we think back to memories, a lot of times movies are tied into those. And a lot of times, how much we love a film or how much we enjoy watching a film isn't always necessarily based just upon, well, how good the movie was. It's also tied into our memories of the film, where we were at the time when we first saw it, when we first heard about it, on subsequent viewings, what was going on in our lives. I personally can point to any movie that I've watched multiple times over the years and be able to tell why it was important at different times in my life and how it affected me differently each time. And the movie we're talking about this week, really, the reason why I felt the need to talk about it is just because how personally important uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou has been to me. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou seems like an unlikely hit, and like most Cohen Brothers movies, it really is about as unlikely as you can get. The movie follows three unlikely heroes. We have Ulysses Everett McGill, played by George Clooney, and what has to be the role that got me to pay attention to him. John Turturro as Pete Hogwallop, and what has to be one of the most scene-chewingly overacted uh, performances in his career, and I love him for it. This is not something I, I dislike. And Tim Blake Nelson as Delmar O'Donnell, and as, unbelievably, the straight man of the bunch, who kind of plays off the comedy just in stride. The movie itself follows these three gentlemen as they escape from a chain gang in 1930s Depression-era America on the promise of a big score from George Clooney's Everett McGill, who promises them riches that he has buried based on a previous job that he's done. The story itself is pretty straightforward. Uh, They put it forward as an adaptation of Homer's Odyssey, and to be sure, there are elements from the Odyssey in there, pretty much the things we know from popular culture. Uh, They come across a Cyclops at some point, played by John Goodman, which we'll get to his performance later when I talk about all the actors. And we have a bunch of sirens who have this amazingly wonderful scene. And we even have a blind prophet in the beginning letting them know exactly what's going to happen to them later on their journey. The thing is, this isn't just a straight adaptation. In fact, the Coen brothers have admitted they've never even read the book. They only know what's seeped down into popular culture from the Odyssey. And funny enough, Tim Blake Nelson, who plays Delmar O'Donnell, is the only person on the whole crew who actually had read the book. And the weird thing is, this movie is a bit better for it because what it's doing is it's taking what we've all collectively taken in from this classic Greek literature, the things that we remember from, you know, elementary school talk, you know, talks about Greek mythology, from what we know from bits of trivia on, on Jeopardy or anything like that. And it takes those pieces, the things that are actually in the zeitgeist of America, and uses those to make the movie. And so it doesn't have to be this slavish adaptation. It doesn't have to be classical with capital C. Because of that, they can play around with these stories and these characters that we've seen in all very interesting and different ways. As far as the personal story goes for this, my connection to this movie is a pretty big one. This movie first came out in 2000, and that was around the time when I was first, you know, starting college, getting myself, you know, kind of seeping up and limping into adulthood. And 
it was one of the first movies where I kind of realized there was more to see in movies. You see, yes, I've always loved movies. I've always gone to movies with my father, with my friends, and I've always talked about movies with them. The thing was, it had always been very base level. You know, Fifth Element was a movie that came out in 96, and I loved that movie, but it was always about how awesome the action sequences looked, or how amazing the special effects were, or just how good the actors acted in the movie, right? It was always, oh, that was good. I never really looked at a film critically, and honestly... It was something I was struggling with at that time. See, as I was going from high school into college, I was trying to find really what my area of expertise was. And while I loved to read and I loved to watch movies, I never had the confidence. I never thought, well, I'm the type of person who can analyze these things. I'm the type of person who can be critical or think differently about books or movies or things like that. I thought it was beyond me. And it was one of those situations where I always felt out of my depth and a little weird in literature classes because... Who was I to put forth any ideas that weren't just on the page? See, with this movie, though, I remember sitting down and watching it. I actually saw it on DVD for the first. I must have been 2002. And it was weird. I watched the movie, and I'd like it, but I didn't know why. It, it struck me, and it made me smile, and it made me feel a million different emotions. But there I was at about 20 or 21, and I had no clue why I liked the movie so much. I couldn't just put my finger on and say, oh, it was a great action movie. Or, oh, there was it's amazing sequences. Yes, those things were there, but there was something more there. And it was one of those movies where it begged me to watch it over and over again. And I remember doing just that. I remember watching that DVD so many times compared to anything else I'd ever owned. And just soaking in every little bit. And that's when it really clicked for me. That I was noticing bigger things. That I was noticing little details in the background. That I was noticing how the characters were interplaying with each other on a different level than just, oh, here's what they're saying to each other. It's when I first noticed that it mattered who the hell the directors were. You know, this was the first time I ever started paying attention to, oh, not who's starring in the movie, but who's behind the camera? Who are the people who are directing this thing? Who are the the people who are pushing this forward? Hell, who's the cinematographer? You know, this is when I started realizing there's a million little pieces that go into making a movie. And looking at each of those little pieces opens up kind of a whole new world. This movie opened my eyes to what makes great films. And for that, I'll always be forever thankful to a brother where I am. You gotta go to the lonesome valley. You One of the first things that'll strike you when you watch the movie is just how beautiful and just how cohesive everything looks. You know, this is supposed to be 1930s Depression-era Dust Bowl America, and by God, they make it look like how you imagine it in your head. It's very sepia-toned. There's everything from the fields to the trees are all in this kind of crackly brown that just, you just kind of see the thirst in the trees and the ground and all the vegetation. There's not a single piece of this movie that doesn't have that slight coat of grime on it, I want to say. And that goes to the not just the set dressing and not just the uh, you know overall look of the backgrounds and the, and the sets. It also goes to the, the costume design. Everything looks very vintage and worn in and kind of lived in. And they do an amazing job of doing a period piece. Now, I know it's very hard to and very expensive to make a convincing looking period piece. But everything from the prison jumpers that they're wearing to the busted old car that they break out of the barn when they go to visit, you know, Pete's relatives who, who drop the dime on them for the cops, even straight down to the buildings themselves that they find. I don't know where they found these places. I don't know if they built them. I'd have to go back and look at some special features because everything just oozes what you imagine that era of America looking like. And 
if you've listened to my Leatherheads episode, you know that when there's any sort of Americana on a film, like the mythical Americana, I just drop dead for that stuff. And this movie really, it helped solidify my love of that. And it helped me identify that I like these types of movies. You know, this is a movie that takes them across multiple states, that takes a look at what poor people were going through. And mind you, it's not realistic. I know that. I know that's not a historical document, but hell, it captures the feeling of that time period, the things that we've heard about in history books and read about in in articles and documentaries. We see it come to life in, in a very traditional, very old Hollywood sort of way. And being able to see just this era of America and this very specific area of America come to life just made me completely fall in love with this movie. You know, one of the best scenes for this is as they're running away from the cops and they're trying to get back to Ulysses Everett McGill's house, they come across, of course, the famous radio station where they go and they're going to go sing in a can, as they say, for, for however many cents the man will pay them. And as they get there, you have Pappy O'Daniel, plays by Charles Durning, as just your traditional over-the-top Southern politician of the time. See, at a time when everyone is hungry when everyone has no money, when they can't grow anything to either support themselves or feed themselves. You have this man who's clearly living much better than everyone else, who is selling them the biscuit mix that is really the only thing they can afford. And you see the two sides of this politician. You see how, yes, oh no, very traditional, he'll press the flesh, he'll talk very nicely on the radio about how much he loves the air and how the cool, clear, clean water that you use to make the biscuits are, you know, very homely and very, he's, he's part of the people. But the minute he steps out, The minute he's out in front and is faced with the real people, we have McGill and Pete and Delmar, well, he hates them. He calls them crackers. He sees them as low class, and he can't hide his contempt for them. And this, again, shows very much during that time period the striation, the kind of differences in American culture, where you had the haves and have-nots were almost never clearer than during that time period. Because, yes, while we like to think of the Depression as, oh, everyone was super dirt poor— no, everyone wasn't. It was the people who had to work for a living were dirt poor. But then you had other guys like this, like Papio Daniel, who were the ones who, on the backs of the people who were starving, were making quite a lot of money and a political career for themselves. It's just in just that one moment, you you get this wonderful, wonderful view as to what's happening in this era of America. In constant sorrow his day. that scene leads to really what is almost weirdly making this movie a musical. While the movie is not a musical, the music takes on a life of its own. See, as they're living the hobo life and trying to get their way back to uh, McGill's wife, they become the fictional soggy bottom boys. They go, they record a song, they get paid five bucks a piece or whatever it is, and they go upon their way. And it's great because (laughs) from that moment, the movie becomes a slightly different movie. Yes, it's still a road movie. It's still about them getting where they go. But then it's also about how, even though people are poor, even though people are very much not able to make ends meet, you see scenes of people going into the Five and Dime to go buy copies of the Soggy Bottom Boys' Man of Constant Sorrow. And how something like music, something like, you know, any sort of media that can take their minds off of how just poor and desperate they are, is still important to them. And I think that's part of what this movie is trying to say, is that even in the most desperate times, things like music can just bind everyone together. As not just Man of Constant Sorrow, throughout the movie, you see people in most desperate and dire situations using music 
as a way of communicating just how just heart-wrenching it is. From the opening, which I, I love the opening. It could be a silent film on its own for the first 10 minutes. But you have the sound of the breaking rocks with the chain gang singing, Oh Lazarus, Lazarus, a, a very traditional bluegrass tune. Really sets the mood. You, you get the pain. You get the hurt of the people who have just because, you know, they're down on their luck. They couldn't pay their farm bills. They're in debtor's prison at this point. You hear just the desperation in their voices. Later on, when they're singing O Death at the Klan rally, again, it leads just, just this chilling overtone to everything that's happening. And the music cut throughout the movie is just, it's, it's, it's like the lifeline, I want to say. It's, uh, it's hard to put my finger on it. It's how the events themselves, yes, are important, but without the music, it, it seems to lose a bit of its flavor, a bit of its Americanness, I want to say. And just the, the amount of, of traditional bluegrass that's in this movie just was phenomenal, and it was incredible just how popular it even was. You know, the, the album itself became more popular than the movie, became a Grammy winner that year. Can you imagine not only a soundtrack, but a bluegrass soundtrack winning for best album for the year? And it just kept selling so much so that they did two albums that were sequels, Oh Sister and Oh Sister 2, and kind of kicked off a revival of bluegrass that's still going on to this day. So for that alone, this this movie has opened up a lot of people's eyes to a, to a music and art form that was lost to for, it lost for many generations. For that alone, this movie deserves a lot of credit. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's a lot can be said about the performances themselves. I mean, I absolutely love your principal characters. Uh, John Turturro's Pete Hogwallop, Hogwallop, as I mentioned before, way over the top, kind of sounds like he's chewing around a big gob of something every time he's speaking. Like, it's almost hard for him to speak. Gets that feeling of a man who was a farmer, who was trying to take care of his family, who just fell on hard times, and really through no fault of his own, wound up in prison because he couldn't pay off his bank. And you have Tim Blake Nelson is perfect as Delmar because really with both George Clooney and John Chaturro, you have such big, big personalities. You have to have someone that's a bit mild in between. And Tim Blake Nelson just deadpans it perfectly throughout this movie. There's not a scene that isn't made better by him punctuating it with just a small comment. One of the best examples is right in the beginning where they're deciding, okay, who needs to lead this group of people? Who needs to, you know... And then he's like, okay, let's put it to a vote. And there's three of them. And George Clooney says, I'm going to vote for yours truly, pointing to himself. And John DeChiro says, well, I'm going to vote for yours truly also. He said, look at Delmar. And then the timing was just perfect. He looks at them and says, I'm with you guys, not realizing exactly what he was saying. It's just very, very great deadpan humor there. And it's something that we don't see quite enough or done well enough, I could say. When we think humor now these days, we think people kind of yelling and screaming over each other as opposed to this very subtle kind of timing-based uh, comedy that, that, that really is sorely missing. And while Clooney himself, he just, I don't know, it was one of these situations where I never paid much attention to him before this movie because he was that, you know, dreamboat actor who was on ER. That was a show that I didn't care about. Seemed very much like a soap opera actor to me. And then he was in Batman, and that, well, that movie was terrible, so I didn't like him in that. And then Peacemaker was halfway decent, but I didn't really respect him as an actor i guess it was the same problem i had with brad pitt for a while where he was just one of those pretty faces they put on you know a movie poster but then i watched him in this and his ability to go from just slapstick fall down comedy 
to very subtle kind of uh, verbal humor, which he, there is a lot of wordplay in this movie, by the way. It just, it, it comes fast, it comes quick, and it's, again, I feel like when he would later on make Leatherheads, he was definitely looking to this movie as inspiration. It just, his ability to go between those two things and then, out of nowhere, hit you with some of the best dramatic acting. I mean, I, I cannot think of a better scene that has affected me more than at the end of this movie, when he's waiting to be executed. And he has not seen his wife, his children. And it cuts down to it. It's not about greed. It's not about what you know he wants. It's simply about his family. And that plea he makes to the God that he says that he does not believe in. To anyone who's listening. That all he wants to do is see his girls again. Just impactful like you wouldn't believe. It's one of the best acted scenes I've ever seen in my life. And probably will see in my lifetime. And I think it's a shame that he was not considered for Academy Award for it. Because it's probably some of his best work. So this movie really kind of opened my eyes and made me seek out more movies with him in it. And I'm glad that I have because he's become one of my favorite actors over the years. Now, besides the principal actors, we have just a cavalcade of just any character actor you can imagine. Uh, like from the aforementioned Charles Durning as Papi O'Daniel, kind of hamming it up as a weird, overtly racist uh, uh, Colonel Sanders. Michael Badalucco playing George Nelson. Man, just, again, pulling just anyone they can from 1930s folklore. George Babyface Nelson and with the Tommy gun out the side of the fucking car. Just, it just hits that American mythos perfectly. Wayne Duvall's Homer Stokes is that over-the-top politician who will do anything to get you a vote. And my favorite moment in that, one of the favorite moments in this movie, comedic-wise, is when he gets on the campaign trail and he's talking about how he's going to fight for the little man. And he has a little midget with him who's uh, sweeping the uh, swamp. And it's one of these things where it, this election recently reminded me of this. He said he was going to sweep out the corruption from the uh, from the swamp that is the politics in, in, in the South. And again, for a movie that's supposedly about a man just trying to get home, it's saying quite a bit about what politics were like and are still like in America in American culture. And it just it, it does it in such quick, short bursts that it just it's incredible that they're able to fit so much into this movie. Um, of course, we'd be remiss if we did not talk about Big Dan Teague, because it's not just his imposing nature as the Cyclops, right? My I love the take on this that the Cyclops itself, instead of being this big lumbering idiot, is smooth and he is intelligent, and he's that much more dangerous because he can outthink you, he can make you want to be his friend, and then he'll turn around and he'll smash you over the head with a log. I can't think of a more terrifying or humorous role that John Goodman has done uh, in, the, in recent years. And again, very limited screen time. He's only there for a couple of scenes before he gets a burning cross dropped on his head. But still, he leaves a huge mark on that movie just from his force of character on the screen. Rounded out with really pretty much just anyone you can imagine you've seen in uh, in, in a Coen Brothers movie. From and I got to give a special mention to the Sirens here. Um, for the Sirens, I, I got to tell you, Mia Tate, Musette Vander, and Christy Taylor, incredible, both just vocally and just visually for this movie. Uh, that song they sing down by the river uh, in the scene with the Sirens was just phenomenal and it's just one of those songs that i used to listen to all the time uh hell i gotta tell you i love the soundtrack so much mostly because of this song actually that i not only owned it on cd i bought it on sacd which is a super audio format that no longer exists i own it multiple times on mp3 because i've lost the hard drive that i've downloaded them on and i've considered at different times buying the vinyl i'm probably going to pull the trigger this year and buy that that's how much i love this uh soundtrack mostly for that song because it just encapsulates 
the beauty of uh, of the uh, the vocal stylings of pure bluegrass singing. Go to sleep, you little babe. Go to sleep, you little babe. Go to sleep, you little babe. Your mama's gone away and your dad's gonna stay. Don't leave nobody but the babe. Overall, this movie is a very easy one to go back to. Again, you're looking at a, almost a 17-year-old movie, and it's hard to believe this is a 17-year-old movie because it looks incredible. And I, I do want to point out one thing. If you can, again, get your hands on the disc version. I have the DVD version. I'm hoping the Blu-ray has all the special features also because not only are there great commentary tracks on there, there are some excellent excellent special features uh one that has stuck with me for years is the one called painting with pixels because one of the amazing things about this movie is it was actually the first movie to have an all digital post-production it actually beat phantom menace by a year that it did all of its post-production in computers as opposed to in a standard color lab this was actually because when they shot the movie they shot it on location locations that looked perfect except everything was green. <laughs> See, we don't live in the current Dust Bowl, and so everything was lush and green. I think they say in the in the commentary that it looked like freaking Ireland when you walked out there. That's how green the area was. And funny enough, if you find one of the old trailers, like the original teaser trailer for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's before they color-corrected everything. And so everything is green and kind of off. It doesn't have that sepia tone to it. Uh, they actually went in and hand-brushed like brushed out all the green into that beautiful sepia tone that you see. And it's incredible that such early post-production still holds up as well as it does that you wouldn't think that that's post-production or CG that's being done, but it is. And this is where whenever someone complains about, oh, there's too much use of computer graphics and computer post-production. No, there's too much use of bad computer post-production because the good stuff you don't realize it's there and this is one of those situations where it's so good you don't really realize it's there until you see this astounding documentary they have on the dvd so if you can find the disc version you can probably pick it up real cheap i would suggest having it uh i don't have the blu-ray version i'm hoping the blu-ray version has it so check before you buy it on amazon or something and again since it's a movie that stands up so well i suggest that anyone who hasn't seen it really see this movie watch it from beginning to end and you'll just fall in love top to bottom with everything about this movie. I can almost guarantee it. And really, this is what opened my eyes up to the Coen brothers as kind of a, a set of directors. I went back and started watching all their other stuff. Fargo, which I originally didn't like as much, went back and enjoyed quite a bit. And really, everything going forward with them, with or without George Clooney, I mean, Burn After Reading is great stuff if you like spy movies. Uh, Miller's Crossing, if you like you know, gangster movies. Goddamn, go watch that movie. Really, this is one of their best overall films, though. And really, I can't give a higher suggestion. Well, as always, guys, I'd like to hear what you think about this. Uh, again, I'd like to thank some of the people who have given us feedback. Nestor, again, gave me some great feedback about the mini-episodes that we're going to try to implement going forward. And again, if you'd like to contact us, let us know what you've thought, uh, your ideas, your thoughts. Please let us know at offtargetpodcast at gmail.com. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Google Play. Just search for Off Target. You should find us pretty quickly. And as always, if you'd like to see our archives, if you'd like to see any of the kind of bare minimum writing we have right now, we're going to try to do more writing. You can always visit us, visit us on offtarget.org, which is our main website. I want to thank you guys again. Keep your ear to the ground and keep your eye on Facebook for announcements about the future. And I'll talk with you guys again next week.
wheel gambling around He thought he was the smartest guy around Well, I found out last Monday That Bob got locked up Sunday They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown He's in the jailhouse now